The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. You have stirred such wonderful memories for Jan and me during these last couple of weeks. Thank you for that. I preached my first sermon in 1962. It was at the First Baptist Church in Rogers, Texas, my home church. Might have been 50 people there at that day. That means I've been preaching for 61 years. And during most of those weeks and Sundays, I prepared a message on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and most of the time, Thursday at noon in a men's Bible study. And I taught a a pastor's class, Sunday school. We sat up here in the choir. James Westbrooks took that over for me and improved it, by the way, I might say. And then then I had the privilege of teaching preaching at Truett Seminary for seven years associated with Baylor. So I've had a lot of opportunities over the years to deal with a basic question. What is a good sermon? What does, what does a good sermon do? Now, to, to get the best answer to that question, we have to go all the way back to Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, born in 384 B.C., He, he talked about what it takes to make a good speech, a good presentation. We, we would, can exchange for that. What does it take to, to make a good sermon, a good, a good message from the pulpit? And he developed what he called a rhetorical, a rhetorical triangle. And three words represented those three points of the triangle. Lagos, pathos, and ethos. Lagos had to do with, has to do with learning. Pathos has to do with feeling. And ethos, ethics, has to do with action, with, with doing. He said that every good message involves those three things. Every good sermon involves those three things. Every good sermon, in every good sermon, we learn something, we feel something, and we're motivated to do something. Every preacher who stands in a pulpit on a Sunday morning wants to accomplish those three things. And sometimes we do. Or sometimes we accomplish one of those things. Or maybe two of those things. And then, of course, on many, many, many occasions, we don't achieve any of them. And the congregation leaves totally clueless, not having 
felt anything in the sermon and only motivated to get to the restaurants before the other people do in the other churches. (laughs) This morning, I want to focus on one of those things. I want to focus on pathos. This morning, in this sermon, in this message, in, in this worship service, I want us to feel something. I want us to leave here with a hallelujah chorus in our hearts. I want to celebrate life's greatest gift. I read not too long ago an online article in which the writer identified what he called history's five greatest gifts. The first one was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, given by Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon to his wife, the Persian princess, who was homesick because of the land, beautiful land she left, to come and marry him. The second was the Trojan horse, given to the city of Troy by the Greeks, which of course was not a gift at all, Because inside of that horse were the Greek warriors, and they came out of it and killed everybody once they had pushed that wooden horse into the walls of the city. The third is the Taj Mahal in India, built by Shah Jahan for his wife, who died on one of his war trips, giving birth to her 14th child. She needs a monument, right? The fourth one is the Koh-i-Noor diamond, one of the largest diamonds in the world. It was given first to a royal in India, but then, as the British do, they eventually brought it back to London, and now it is a part of the royal jewelry collection of England. And finally, the Statue of Liberty, given by the French to the United States in 1886 to celebrate the friendship between these countries. Five, according to this article, greatest gifts of history. But I want to suggest to you this morning that none of these gifts compare to the gift I want us to talk about this morning. Paul refers to life's greatest gift when he says in our text for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, when Paul said it is indescribable, he didn't mean that we can't describe it at all. What he meant was that we can't describe all of it. There are no words in any language that we can bring together that will capture the fullness and the grandeur and the comfort and the splendor and the depth of this gift, this indescribable gift. So think about the context of this verse with me, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. It's in the context of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. Paul is commending the Christians in Corinth 
for their incredible generosity and the gifts they have given in order to help the needy Christians there in Jerusalem. He thinks about the generosity of their gifts, what it does, how good it is, how helpful it has been. And as he writes those words, he shifts his thought and begins to think about the even more incredible gift that Jesus has given to us, that God has given to us. It's the gift that Paul is talking about in our text for today. So what is this indescribable gift? What is this greatest gift that Paul talks about? It is the gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Or to turn that around, it is Jesus Christ who gives us this gift of salvation. Thanks be to God, Paul says, for this indescribable gift. So I want to talk about this today. What can we say about this indescribable gift? Well, first of all, we can say that it is an unmerited gift. This is one of the most frequently pronounced and most biblically based principles of Christianity. And yet it is one of the most misunderstood. Over the years, over and over again, I talked to individuals about giving their life to Jesus. And their response was, they couldn't give their life to Jesus because they didn't think they were good enough. They didn't, they didn't think they deserved God's love. They didn't, think, they didn't think Jesus would accept them. The Jesus who accepted the Samaritan woman at the well, the Jesus who gave special praise to the sinful woman who anointed his feet, the Jesus who found his greatest joy in giving himself to the outcast of his society, the Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of the world, the Jesus who looked at the thief on the cross next to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Just imagine anybody thinking that this Jesus will not accept them. Jesus spent his whole life demonstrating to us God's love for the unlovely and God's acceptance of the unacceptable. It's not a person here today within the sound of my voice whom God does not love and want to save, want to bring to eternal life. Some of you might be saying, but I don't deserve that love. You're right. We don't. But thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, which comes to us before we deserve it, before we can ever accomplish anything that would make him draw to us. It comes to us just like we are and opens up to us the possibility of new life. It is an unmerited gift. And it's also an unlimited gift. Anyone and everyone can claim it. As one preacher put it, the ground is level 
at the foot of the cross. Now, this doesn't mean that the obstacle between us and God is the same. It's different for all of us. For the rich young ruler that Jesus talked to, it was his money. That was what stood in the way. For Paul, it was his religious pride. For the woman caught in adultery, it was her deflated estimate of herself. For Augustine, one of the great fathers of the early church, the problem was essential pleasures. For us, it might be something else. But regardless of what stands in the way between us and God, regardless of what it is that is holding us back from him, he he comes to all of us with that same offer. If we will turn to him, and accept him, he will forgive us, he will receive us, and he will give us eternal life. The good news that this gift is not ferreted out to us according to our abilities or our wealth or our goodness or our greatness, it comes to every one of us, whoever we are, and offers us the gift of life. It's unlimited. It's also an unparalleled gift. Jesus Christ, the salvation he offers, is a part of a religion called Christianity that is different from every other religion of the world. Now, there are many religions, but Christianity is distinct in several ways. For one thing, no other religion has a risen Savior. There was a biblical scholar a few years ago, J. Sidlow Baxter, that told of the discovery in India of the bones of Buddha. And they took these bones of Buddha and they paraded them all across the country. And everywhere they went, the people fell down on their faces and gave homage to, to the bones of Buddha. And a Christian missionary who was there watched all of this and he turned to his friend and he said, if they find one bone of Jesus, story's over. That's the difference. Buddha died, he's still dead. Confucius died, he's still dead. Muhammad died, he's still dead. Jesus died and left nothing behind but an empty tomb and an angel declaring, he is not here, come, see the place where he lay. He is risen. No other other religion has a risen savior. And no other religion has a perfect Lord. In all the other religions of the world, the leaders have demonstrated, manifested sin. But, but Jesus lived a life in which no sin was detected. The thief on the cross next to him found no fault in him, no sin in him. The Roman soldier who nailed him to the cross, who said, this is the son of God, he found no fault in him. 
His disciples, those who knew him best, could find no fault in him. No other religious leader in all of history has made the claim claim of perfection and proved it by the life they live. No other religion has a, a perfect Lord. And no other religion has a seeking God. In all the other religions of the world, the whole point is for us to try to find God. But the central theme of Christianity is that God is desperately trying to find us. God is desperately trying to come to us. It's different than the other religions. Muslims, they're persuaded to go to Mecca during their lifetime in search of God. Confucius tells people that we need to think so that we can find God. Muslims, uh, uh, Buddhists are encouraged to live the kind of life that will enable them to find God. But in Christianity, God comes to us. He comes to where we are. He comes to the nitty-gritty of life and comes to dwell in our hearts. No other religion has a God who seeks us. And no other religion has a God, a living personality through Jesus Christ, who comes to us to help us in the daily nitty-gritty details and challenges of life. It's a story I heard a long time ago that describes the plight of a man who was going along one day and he fell down into this big pit. Tried to get out, but he couldn't. He was stuck. According to the story, Confucius came by and he said, poor fellow, if you had listened to me, you wouldn't have fallen down in there. And then he passed on by. Buddha came by and said, poor fellow, if you'll come up here, I'll help you. And then he went on by. Muhammad came by and he said, poor fellow, it must be the will of God for you to be down there. And he went on by. And then Jesus came by and said, poor fellow. And he jumped in the pit and helped bring him out. Other religions offer guidelines to follow and doctrines to believe in, but Christianity offers a living personality who comes to us in the nitty-gritty of life and helps us live. It's no wonder Paul declared, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God's gift in Jesus is unlike any other gift It's an unparalleled gift. Unmerited, unlimited, unparalleled. And this indescribable gift is also uncontainable. I mean, once you got it, once it comes, there's no way to hold it in. There was Andrew. He met Jesus. And immediately he had to go and share that word with his brother, Simon Peter. There was a woman at Sychar, and she had to 
immediately go back to her village and tell everybody about what she had heard. There was the blind man whom Jesus had healed, who the religious leaders were trying to silence. And he looked at him and he pointed to Jesus and he said, all I know is that I was blind and now I see, and he did it. There was Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin said, we don't want you to preach anymore. And they said, we can but say the things we have seen and heard. When we're we're touched, really touched by this indescribable gift of God, we cannot hold it in. It is uncontainable. And it's also, thank God, unending. It's not for this life only, but it's also for the life to come. It's not only for now, but it's for all time. I laughed when I heard a teenager tell her friend that her grandmother was 60 years old and still alive. (laughs) Well, the bone-chilling truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that no matter how old we might get, we will never die. We'll die physically. The body will die physically. But, but we will live forever. It's something not just for the life we live in Richardson, Texas. It's for all eternity. It's something that we will experience all the way into heaven. So what is, what is heaven like? We really don't know. There's not many details in the New Testament. But the Bible suggests that heaven will be better, more glorious than anything we have ever experienced before. Heard a story of a little boy who was blind from birth. But the family discovered there was a new surgery that would open for him again the world of color and light. Surgery was done. Parents were by his bed. Doctors had come in. They were going to remove the bandages from his eyes. And when they did that for a moment, the brilliance of the light and the harshness of the hues blinded the boy. But then gradually, things began to clear, and he began to look around, and he saw all of the things he had never seen before. And he turned to his parents, he said, why didn't you tell tell me it was so beautiful? And the parents said, we tried to. That's what heaven will be like. Don't know all the details, but that's what heaven will be like. When the bandages of death fall from our eyes and we see the amazing things of heaven, we're going to cry out, why didn't you tell me it was so beautiful? That's why Charles Spurgeon, the gifted English preacher, 
said at his death, this is my coronation day. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a martyr for his faith in mid-century Germany, cried out at his death, this is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. That's why Danny Bolden, on the day he died, woke Marcia up crying, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. They were already beginning to glimpse the glory that awaits those of us who have embraced this indescribable gift of God. When we all get to heaven, we just sang it. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. An unmerited gift. An unlimited gift. An unparalleled gift. An uncontainable gift. An unending gift. It's no wonder that Paul declared in the verse which is our text for today. Will you say it with me? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. What a gift, Lord. And what a blessing. Not only now, but for all of the tomorrows and beyond. We stand in awe of your love. We stand in awe of Jesus' willingness to come, to live, to die, to arise from the grave, to ascend to heaven to your right hand so that we can have our sins forgiven and that we can experience in our own hearts this basic Christian truth for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life we claim that gift today in Jesus name amen there might be some here today who have not claimed that indescribable gift, who have not embraced what God makes available to every one of us. You don't think you're good enough? You're right. You don't think you deserve it? You're right. But thanks be to God, He gives us that gift. Will will you embrace that today? If you've already embraced that, will you celebrate that today? If you need to share in a public way a decision to join this church, a decision to embrace this gift or some other decision that God has laid on your heart, we give you that opportunity before we leave here today. Pastors will be here at the front. Will you stand as we close our service?